This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Steve Davitkos. Every now and then, I am fortunate enough to get the opportunity to speak with authors of books that I've really enjoyed, and today I was very happy to welcome Mike Michalowicz to the podcast. Mike is the author of nine books, but the book that caught my attention was called Profit First. The book has about 8,000 ratings on Amazon with an average of 4.7 stars, so I thought it was worth checking out. After having read it, I knew that I had to get Mike on the show due to the deceptively simple but highly effective system he utilizes in his businesses to hit his targeted profitability numbers with a high degree of regularity. In addition to being a best-selling author, Mike is himself a serial entrepreneur, having founded, operated, and successfully exited several companies across his multi-decade career. He now spends much of his professional time writing, speaking, and coaching CEOs and entrepreneurs on the various systems and tools that helped make him successful. As usual, allow me to conclude by mentioning that I am an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire, so if you're raising a search fund or have an equity gap, I'd love to speak with you. Please enjoy my conversation today with Mike Michalowicz. Mike Michalowicz, welcome to the show. Steve, thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I recently read your book, well, one of your books, I should say, called Profit First. Um, about 8,000 reviews on Amazon, 4.7 stars of the average rating. So clearly you're onto something. Uh, you were onto something, I should say, when you wrote this book. So we're going to get there. But before we do, uh, for those who may not be familiar with your story, let's start by having you walk us through the chronology of your career as an entrepreneur and business owner, including what led you to what you're doing today. Sure, sure. So I'll try to do the quick bullet points. Um, and the highlights, actually, the, the darkest period. So uh, for me, after college, I didn't get a job that I dreamed of. I, I got a job working at a computer store and very quickly became frustrated that I thought the business owner was sitting in the back office 
smoking cigars and counting money while I, you know, worked like a, like a slave. That's how I saw it. And then one particular night, admittedly, admittedly with a uh, little bit of liquid courage in me, I said, gosh, I'm going to start my own business. And I did. Um, I burned my bridges on the way. I, I called my former employer and said, I'm out of here and I'm going to dominate this industry. I'm going to be the next big computer guy, you know, the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. And um, when I woke up the next morning with some sobriety, it's like, what the hell did I just do? Couldn't get my job back, start a computer business. What I found is that fear is a huge motivator um, to get up at the crack of dawn and keep working till the next crack of dawn. Um, so really ran a fear-based business. But in that process, I also did fall in love with the freedom, the potential, all these elements of entrepreneurship. Sold that business to private equity after about eight or nine years. It wasn't a big exit, but it was an exit which it was substantial enough for me to think, oh my gosh, I, this can make you can make huge money. And the interesting thing is I never made money running the business. It was always check by check survival, but the exit was it. So I was like, okay, I'm going to become this pump and dump guy, build them quickly and sell them. My second business was in computer crime investigation that ended up by good fortune or bad, I don't know, but being a pump and dump. We got the Enron trial. We were the lead defense investigators for that case, the forensic investigators and other major projects. And in retrospect, right place, right time. I thought it was actually genius. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm amazing. Fortune 500 buys us. And at that time it made, you know, for me, life-changing income. And I was in my early 30s. But along with that package came ego, arrogance. Um, I just, I thought I was better than other people. I'm ashamed and embarrassed to admit that, but it was, it's the truth of how I felt. And uh, <clears throat> I said, I'm going to become an angel investor. We come from a similar background, you and I, with, with uh, the entrepreneurial group we were in. And it seems to be the trajectory of many entrepreneurs that have some exits. So I'm like, oh, I'll give this person 50,000, that person 100, and that one 20. And as long as I'm investing and I'm here, we're going to crush it. And I was, it was a calamity. It was just dollar after dollar vanquished. And uh, I blew so much money. I was able to eradicate all of my wealth, to destroy it all within less than two years. It was emptied. And part of it too was I, I needed to show trophies of success. So got the bigger house. We got a place out in Hawaii for a sabbatical. We I got the expensive cars. and blah, blah, blah. The most important element of this journey and the darkest period, but it was transformative for me. And I'm now in retrospect, so grateful for it was I got a call from my accountant one particular day. I'll never forget. It was February 14th, which is Valentine's day. I'll never forget 2008. And uh, the call came and he said, I can't believe I'm saying this to you, Mike, but you got to declare bankruptcy. And um, I didn't, I didn't think my creditors were responsible for my idiocy, but I did have to come home to my family to tell them um, we're done. And we got to, liquidate our few remaining assets to, uh, to cover the bills. And so we got rid of the cars. Um, we lost our house 30 days later, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it was a full restart. My daughter, and I share a story in one of my books, my daughter picked up her piggy bank from her bedroom. She was nine years old. She was saving to buy a horse. She had quarters and nickels in there and ran over to me. She said, daddy, since you can't support our family, I'll be the one who does it. And, you know, the tears streaming down from me and my wife and our family and this, the fear. 
And then the kind of the last part of the story thing that's relevant is it wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, now I have a calling. I got to fix this. I woke up and I'm like, where's the booze? And started drinking, went through depression for a couple of years. And also during that time started to journal. Thank God for that. Because I was writing down, not like you got this today, no motivational nonsense. I shouldn't say it's nonsense, but I wasn't focused on the motivational. What I was writing down was why can't I be sustainably profitable? How come my businesses were surviving check by check? And I started to investigate these questions I'd never investigated before. And it started to become a book um, or at least elements of a book. And uh, that was when I realized, oh my gosh, I got to solve this for me and then provide the solution to others who are in the same situation. So I became an author. Uh, I've been doing that now for 15 or 16 years. Uh, I've published many books and i I realize what I'm compelled to share or teach is actually what I need to learn and master for myself. Mm-hmm. Today, I, I have equity in, in a handful of businesses. I have licensing deals and so forth. And uh, I'm an investor again, but in a new form, almost like an incubator model. Uh, we just signed our 10th business a couple of weeks ago and we have five more we're going to sign by April. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. It reminds me of the quote. I don't remember to whom it is originally attributed, but uh, we teach what we most need to learn ourselves. And it certainly sounds like that was applicable in your situation. I uh, I read one of your books, as mentioned, called Profit First, highly acclaimed, very uh, widely read book. For those who haven't read the book, and, and I apologize, you've probably answered this question so many times you can do it in your sleep, but at the <laughs> risk of being very repetitive, uh, for those who haven't read your book, which certainly includes some percentage of the people listening sure. to this. Please walk us through just the 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 high level basics of the profit first method. I I kind of thought about it as, and I'm I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but um, revenue and expenses are typically the primary inputs that lead to profit as an output. But your method changes that equation, where revenue and profit are the primary inputs, and expenses is the output that CEOs yes. have to adjust to ensure that they hit a a targeted profit number. So those are my words. Let's let's hear it straight from the guy who came up with the system. Yeah. Um, so. I'll give a little predecessor to this. This is rooted in a methodology I use in all my research and every book I publish. And it's a three-step process. I first ask myself, what is the outcome that we're seeking in this field? So I want to be rich or I want financial freedom is usually the most common thing I hear from entrepreneurs when it comes to the financials. I then ask, what is the method we follow? So the method is traditionally we have sales. We subtract our expenses that we incur and what's left over is profitability. And then I asked the final question, well, what's the statistical outcome? What's the outcome show? And the data is consistent. Most businesses are in check-to-check survival. Most businesses are not profitable. And it's over 83%, according to research by uh, the SBA, US Bank, there's many parties studying this. So everyone wants financial freedom. Almost no one's experiencing it. And when that happens, when there's a discrepancy between desire and outcome, I look at the methodology and say, what's flawed here? Because we want something, clearly we're making an effort to achieve it. So it's got to be something that we're doing in our process that's wrong. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, well, everyone has sales, everyone's subtracting expenses, and uh, we're waiting for profit. I'm like, oh my God, we're waiting for profit. Steve, it is so pervasive, this concept of profit being the, the last thing that happens. We call it the bottom line or the year end. Literally, the, the vernacular is it can wait. Profit first is a behavioral system. And what it is, is that when, when something is last or can wait, it never happens. If you love your family, you don't say, I love my family, I put them last. I put them first. 
my health matters. I put it first. You don't say I put my health last. So the methodology in its most simple form is the revenue for your firm minus profit equals expenses. So what I'm saying is every time revenue comes in, this is like on a cash basis, you get a deposit. We take a predetermined percentage of profit, hide it from the business. And then your business tells you what you can operate on. So if you mm. want to have a 10% profit or 15, whatever it is, take 10 or 15%. And then your business will tell you what you have to operate with. It's effectively the pay yourself first principle applied to business. Mm. Now, there's one more component. Um, we do this at the bank level. This is not an accounting system. You don't do this on a spreadsheet. It's what's called a behavioral intercept. And I say it's called behavioral. I, I've, I think I may have created that term. There's probably a technical term, but I call it a behavioral intercept. What I mean by this is what is the natural behavior we follow and can we intercept it to channel an outcome we want? Because at the end of the day, it's very hard for us to change our behaviors or change who we are, but it is much easier to channel, meaning sustain the same behavior to drive different results by invoking a system that allows you to keep doing what you do. So I survey audiences constantly. I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to be able to travel and meet with, I, I can't even count how many entrepreneurs it is now, but I'm sure it's over hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs over 15 years. And in audiences, usually informal surveys, sometimes formal, I'll ask who here, even though we know we need to read the accounting statements, our accountant drills in our head, know the income statement, translate the cash flow statement, you know, the balance sheet. Who here follows a simpler system of logging into your bank account? And if you see money there, you know you can spend it. And if you don't, you panic. And all the hands go up. And I ask them, what's the frequency? And, and for many people, they're checking daily or multiple times a day. Then I say, well, that is the best behavior on the planet because that's our established behavior. We need to now intercept that. So what we do with Profit First is we set up multiple bank accounts at your bank. So when income comes in, when you log in, we first divide it up into these different envelopes. It's the envelope system here. Now you know at your bank level where you're logging in what money is pre-allocated to an intended use. So you know exactly what money's allocated to a profit, uh, the ultimate tax liability you're going to have. You know what money's being reserved for that. Paying yourself as an owner a compensation for the work you do, which is far different than profit, is allocated for the operations of the business and so forth. So by carving up the money before we spend it, we have clarity on how we can spend it. And we got to continue that same behavior of logging into the bank account. Yeah. And just to put some numbers around it for folks who may not have read the book, you know, I was just kind of going through a simple example in my head. Um, let's say you have a small business, they make $2.2 million in revenue a year. And let's say <laughs> you're feeling very ambitious. You want to take 50% of that as profit uh, or, or not 50%, but let's say 1.2 million, which is close to 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, though, you know, that's very ambitious. I'm not suggesting this is realistic. I'm just trying to use round numbers. Um, so 1.2 million in profit equates to about a hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, in, yeah. in profit. So you would take that hundred thousand dollars a month, put it into a separate bank account. Yes. Um, and that implies you've got a million dollars a year in expenses. And if you are on track to exceed that, then you would trim expenses until you're back to a million dollars a year in expenses. And interestingly, you're kind of, the way that I read the book is you were touting the merits of kind of going back to cash accounting, which is really interesting because in yeah. my world, we typically buy founder-owned businesses who unapolog un unapologetically engage in cash accounting, will hire KPMG to do a quality of earnings and tell us all the changes that they need to make to go to accrual accounting and be gap compliant and et cetera. 
what I found to be so interested, interesting in your book is you're saying, hey, there's a lot of power in the simple cash in, cash out method. Yeah. I remember an accountant saying to me, and when I say a accountant, my own accountant, he said, I can make the numbers look like whatever you want. <laughs> and I was like, what? Uh, he says, yeah, on an accrual basis, we can shift things around and maximize this for your tax benefits and different things. But it wasn't necessarily a real time, real reflection of the business. There's one thing you said that I want to just add a little uh, adjustment to. You said, you know, when we take our profit first, they'll tell us how much money's left. And if we can't cover our expenses, we need to trim our expenses. And that's only partially true. What happens when you take your profit first and there's less money for expenses than you can pay, it simply means that you can't run the business in its current state to sustain that profitability. So there's a call for action. Now, the call for action may actually be increasing your pricing. So we sustain the expenses, but we're not dictating the appropriate pricing for what we're selling. It could be margin, aka efficiency elements. Maybe it takes us too long or too much effort to produce something. We use the same expenses and resources, but move things through the queue much faster. Or are there unnecessary or non-productive expenses? You know, subscriptions now are notorious for damaging businesses because they're innocuous. You don't see them until they become excruciatingly painful. Mm -hmm. So what I teach people in, is if you want to achieve a 50% profit or whatever the number is, and, and a little aside here too, you can go too far, too fast, too strong yes. and damage your business. So don't, yep. yeah. It's kind of like the gym. Like, oh, I haven't lifted in a year. Let me go in there and bench press 300 pounds and your shoulders rip out of your sockets. Let's not do that. Let's learn how to stretch and build our muscle back. So we started the percentage. But what's going to reveal itself very quickly is if you can't pay your bills, there is something fundamentally wrong. There's a reason you can't afford those bills. And now we're going to use this to identify the problems. What most businesses do, absent profit first, if they're logging into their bank account, they fall victim to a, a behavioral concept called Parkinson's law. Parkinson's a theorist from the 1950s, studying human behavior, and notices that as supply of a resource increases, we consume more of it. The more time I'm given to do something, the longer it takes. The more food put on my plate, the more I eat. The more money that comes into my account, the more we spend. So most businesses are spending up to the last penny they have. And only when they feel this sense of dire straits, we have no money left, do they start making corrections. There was a and I don't know who, who says this, but now it's become almost an axiom that most small businesses, and a small business, as I define it, I follow the SBA principles, $25 million in annual revenue or less. Most small businesses are on the constant brink of failure. They're about to go under. And I, I throw that around 180%. I don't believe most businesses are on the brink of failure because they prove month in, month out, they find a way to survive yet one more month. They, they've proven that when the things get too constrained and there's nothing else to do, they will find a way. So I would argue most businesses are not on the brink of failure. Most businesses are on the brink of success. They're just a few smart moves away and sticking with it to transforming their business to healthy, um, consistent growth. Yep. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting in your book is that you made it pretty clear at the risk of putting words in your mouth that you're a big advocate of paying down debt as aggressively as possible, going yeah. so far as to suggest that if a company has debt, they should use 99% of the funds that earmarked for profit to pay down that debt. So I guess I want to ask, like, how and why did you form this opinion? And yeah. Yeah. I guess part B is, 
you know, at, at today's rates, I think folks listening to this can probably see the merits of a strategy like that now. But was that equally true over the past decade when rates were basically zero? Logically, debt is a wonderful tool. And the lower rates are, my gosh, we should use it. Problem is the variable logically. Most entrepreneurs are not the Spocks of the world. We're the Captain Kirks. We're very reactionary. We trust our gut. The reason I strongly urge most entrepreneurs, including myself, not to rely on debt is because we will make um, assumptions in the leveraging or return of debt. In fact, we will use these soft terms like saying, oh, I'm leveraging debt. I'm trying to scale. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're saying those words. That's wonderful. But you don't know what those words mean. What I see entrepreneurs do is they say, well, I'm going to borrow a dollar. Um, and I'm hoping that it's going to, this Facebook advertising or whatever they're doing with that money, um, it's going to return things. And I, I've done this. I, I've borrowed money and say, oh, if I have the nicer office, it's going to impress people. It is very easy to backfill an emotional decision with fuzzy logic, but I've done it countless times. I borrow money. I have a, a, a use for it that I feel will return the money. And in the vast majority of cases, it doesn't. There's three forms of the uses of debt. And it's sadly, it's the third form that crushes people. So one is debt leveraging. Debt leveraging is borrow a dollar and within a predictable period of time, there is a predictable return. So if I borrow a dollar from you and I know within 30 days that I will generate a dollar 20 from every dollar you lend me, I, at the end of 30 days, can return that dollar to you plus the interest I owe you and make the delta. That's debt leverage. And I should keep doing that until the model breaks. But it requires a ROI investment. And, and many people don't do that. And when I say investment, investment of time to determine that percentage and predictability and time frame. Most just arbitrarily guess. They don't look at the data. So that's debt leveraging. And debt leveraging is great. There is what's called debt bridging. Now, debt bridging is where I borrow a dollar from you because I have a unexpected or maybe an expected gap in cash flow but I know I'm going to recover for it. So maybe I sold a big project, client's going to pay me. Uh, they are historically consistent, but it takes 60 days for them to pay me. And I got payroll this month and I don't have the cash flow in the business. I can borrow money to pay that. And then when the check comes in, that deposit comes in, I can return those funds. There's not a return on that, but it bridges me through a dearth of cash. That scenario also requires analysis. And most entrepreneurs don't do that. What most do is called a debt anchoring. And debt anchoring is I'm going to borrow money because I see this opportunity. So I, I, I can plant this flag here and run advertising on Facebook. I'm picking on Facebook today, but whatever it is, and we're going to borrow this money and go for it. But we don't do this analysis of what the return is going to be. And it sets an anchor for the business. It, it locks us in there. And then the panic ensues when we have to return the money plus interest, not working. And then people respond some entrepreneurs respond with desperation. It doesn't manifest as the feeling of desperation necessarily, but we say, oh, we should sell out of this. Uh, we should have a, a price drop so we can get cash flow. Debt often triggers for most small business owners that I've analyzed and worked with, uh, and even myself, it triggers this reactionary um, behavior that causes a cash flow gain. Now what I'm trying to do is collect more cash today to pass, to cover the sins of the past, the financial sins of the past, and now it becomes a collections game. If I can simply generate enough money today to cover the bills that are coming, but that 
only sustain so long. You can only run ahead of the problem so long before it'll catch up to you and you're exhausted. And then the business is done. Stick a fork in. You mentioned that you're an investor in small businesses now. So I'm curious to get your investor lens on this question. So the companies that you invest in, I mean, I understand if one of your portfolio companies has to take out debt to cover an operating cash shortfall, or they want to take out debt to fund some project with an uncertain return. I can see how you might be um, skeptical of such a use. Yeah. But as an investor, they may take out debt for very different reasons. Uh, maybe they're buying another company. I mean, again, that that is right. an example of, of an investment with an uncertain return. Or maybe when you or your colleagues buy the company, you choose to add debt to the transaction to complement your equity. So in use cases like that, where we're not taking out debt to invest in something that we just don't have the money for, does, does your stance on the issue of leverage change at all? Or are you still generally averse? Or, or is debt still like guilty until proven innocent? <laughs> I do start with guilty though proven innocent because it forces the entrepreneur and our team to investigate. So ironically or coincidentally, uh, this weekend, this past weekend before this recording, our team was in North Carolina. We have an investment there. It's about a $10 million business. Uh, they're a quasi-manufacturer assembler. And there's a certain process that has bottlenecked the manufacturing um, that we've identified. We, we have deployed, it was called Theory of Constraints. There's a great book out there by Eli Goldratt called The Goal. And it really puts it in such simple terms that that I can understand it. And we have concluded that a piece of equipment that can double the output in this one section will actually double um, the throughput of our, our entire manufacturing line, uh, therefore likely doubling our, our revenue and potentially our profitability. So now we're actually testing. So now we say, okay, we have a thesis, but how do we test this out before we take the risk? It's an expensive piece of, of equipment. So we're, we're just going through some analysis. Uh, the manufacturer of the machine said, yeah, come, come to our shop and, and have one of your guys come and run the process and we can do trial runs. And we're going to spend a week there investing time. It's a small investment consideration to the piece, the cost of this piece of equipment to prove out our, our thesis. And once we, or our hypothesis, I should say, once we've proven it out, then we have a thesis and then we'll consider deploying it. I want to have a high degree of assurity that there's going to be a return. So I, I want to be in the position where we have a 90 or 95% confidence rating that this will work. I think most entrepreneurs go into a decision to quote unquote, improve their business. And there, there's no confidence rating. It's, it's just spitballing. And, and that's what I'm trying to avoid. What I've also found is, as I shared earlier, changing behavior, me changing my behavior and entrepreneur we're working with changing their behavior is really difficult. So that's why I start off with a hard-nosed, no debt. That's easy. The guidelines, the guiding principles are simple. And we set the profit first system accordingly. Changing the way we manage our business, and, and you have to, if you want to grow your business, you actually have to change yourself. That That's no question. Is a much more uh, engaged long-term process. And we have to build toward it. And, and this one particular entrepreneur that we're working with, that's what we're going through now. Uh, his prior gut was like, oh, I would just buy this machine. And, and, and maybe he's right. From the outside, it sounds like genius, but so does every single idea. So we're going through this very slow and deliberate process. And it's painful for him, for him but I also think he and we are growing through the process. 
I have per personal curiosity, and, and for whatever it's worth, by the way, I share your general uh, approach to debt, which is to say guilty until proven innocent in most yeah. instances. Just out of curiosity, does this um, aversion to debt, for lack of a better way to put it, does that apply to your personal finances as well? And, and why or why not? Yeah, it does. It does. So we carry, my wife and I carry no debt except for our property. And the only reason, I shouldn't say the only reason, a primary reason is we ran the ROI and for a mortgage, whatever, when we acquired these mortgages at, at the interest rates, they were, we were making more money by putting that money into the market. Um, but otherwise no debt period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your, your, your form of debt right now is to use your words, debt leveraging. And I'll just make up these numbers. I have no idea what your mortgage rate is naturally, but let's say you borrowed at, I don't know, 3% three years ago, but now you can put that in treasuries and earn 5%. That 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 would be an example of debt leveraging to use your words. Correct. Correct. I mean, yeah. And we got it actually less than 3%. And what we, you know, we couldn't forecast what the interest rate would be. So the discussion in our house was um, we can take this cash to potentially buy the house, um, but the cash could service in other ways. We also have a predictable income based upon our history that paying down the mortgage at any rate we choose, or I shouldn't say any rate, but we can pay the mortgage down quickly or quicker if we want, or we can sustain it. So we have some ability to throttle that. Um, and we had a high confidence. This is the most important thing that we're not going to miss a single payment. So we know if we took a traditional 30 year mortgage, which we did a 15 year, but if we did a 30 year within 30 years, we have a high degree of confidence that we'll own this, that the value of money um, decreases over time. So what's a, a $2,000 payment, for example, today is less painful every year that goes by. Um, we we concluded that this was a prudent use of the funds. And so that's why we did it. Um, but it was an analysis. And in the past, I didn't do it. I'm like, wow, well, we want a house. Let's just buy it. <laughs> you know, let's just see if we can get it. Let's, let's just borrow money to the hilt. Um, Part of this too is, is I've been there. I, I know the cost of debt beyond the logic. I know the emotional cost. When I lost all my money because of just arrogant spending, I, I had borrowed up to, I think it was three or $400,000. It was, it was just crazy, but I could borrow that kind of money because I was making big money. And so, so the creditors simply go through their calculations and go, well, this dude can pay it back. Whereas a part where I, point where I became insolvent, I couldn't pay it back. I ultimately did. I had to. But what happened, and this scared the bejesus out of me, and, and, and it's definitely part of my makeup now. I remember the stress of not being able to go to sleep saying, how am I going to pay back $300,000? How am I going to get this money? I, you know, and and the, the, the panic and the stress and the tears and all this stuff and the worry and the insomnia. And then I started getting letters in the mail, many. Like I would say at certain days, 10 or 15 letters. My mailbox was packed with letters that said, uh, we're a debt consolidator you know, debt-free America are, are these things. I'm like, holy crap. There's these consolidators that are aware of my situation. My financial woes isn't private to me. The world knows about this. This is public. And that quadrupled the stress I felt. Um, mm -hmm. So I, so debt is more than just a logical consideration. It is an emotional consideration too, an emotional weight if you mess it up, so to speak. Yes, completely agree with that. This episode is brought to you by The Profit Line. 
Now, hopefully you guys recognize that I'm quite selective about the sponsors that I choose to partner with, but the profit line might just be in a league of its own, given that I was a customer of theirs for seven consecutive years while running my own company. The Profit Line is a boutique finance and accounting firm that provides a wide range of accounting services to small and medium-sized businesses, generating anywhere between five to $50 million in revenue or so. On a fractional outsource basis, they will do all of your bookkeeping, bank reconciliations, month-end accruals, tax compliance, financial statement preparation, and they'll work hand-in-hand -hand with your auditors, among countless other things. When I purchased my business, I noticed that the books were a total mess. The company's accounting wasn't compliant with GAAP, they were overly complex, and they just didn't work for the company's new reality, which suddenly included auditors, a bank, investors, and a board. Because of this, I brought in the profit line within my first month or so as a CEO. And fast forward to seven years later, they were still there to help us get our books ready for an exit. We used them when we had no finance and accounting department to speak of, and continued to work with them even as we grew our finance team to four people, including a CFO. For those of you currently running a business, visit theprofitline.com to learn more about how they may be able to help you. For those of you currently evaluating a target to acquire, the Profit Line also offers a high-level, affordable overview of a target company's current accounting systems, processes, and environment. This analysis can be used in conjunction with your QOV project, or it can be done in advance of it to ensure that there are no large red flags before you start spending the big bucks. Again, that's theprofitline.com. Um, I want to get to another theme in your book that I really wanted to unpack with you, and that is this relationship between growth and profitability. Because obviously, you know, the book's called Profit First, for heaven's sake. So a lot of it is about the idea of profit. But then you yeah. also get into the, the question of growth. And I and you mentioned that you get asked questions about growth and profitability and their inverse relationship regularly. Yeah. You know, I used to run a software company, and particularly in software, but I'd say in, in many industries, there's a perceived inverse relationship between growth and profitability, which is to say, Growth is expensive, so if you want to grow fast, you probably have to be less profitable and vice right. versa. You could be more profitable if you grow more slowly. But in your book, you said, hey, I think entrepreneurs should target both, and simply targeting one over the other is a big mistake. So I'd love if you could just elaborate on that stance, because it's, um, I don't want to say it's out of the ordinary necessarily, but it's contrary to what many of us have been told over the years. Totally. I, totally. And and I often take these contrarian stances, um, and this sometimes is perceived as most controversial, but I, I have the data to back it now. We, we have over 800,000 companies that have deployed profit first. One asterisk next to this, these are micro and small businesses. So the typical business that deploys profit first is doing 500,000 to a million dollars in revenue. Um, the the general, I'd say 80 to 90% of the community is under 25 million. We mm -hmm. have had publicly traded companies deploy profit first. And when you do that, there has to be a different approach. You uh, to it. And, and it's a little bit specialized. Um, but the vast majority are these small businesses. And what they, what they often say to me is I can't be profitable because I want to grow. And then we use, I call them soft terms. They're placating terms. I'm plowing back the revenue. I am pushing back the investment. I'm reinvesting in the business. I had this one presentation I did that became a big aha for me. This was about 10 years ago. I was presenting on Profit First. And afterwards, an entrepreneur came up and said, oh, I really like the system. 
it's interesting of taking your profit first and the considerations, but we had a 28% profit this year. I don't think I'm going to do this. I'm like, no, I wouldn't do it either. You know, don't fix what's not broke. And tell me about that. Cause that's a really great return for most businesses. What'd you do with the profit? And she goes, oh, we plowed it all back into the business. And as she said that, like these horns popped out of my head like a devil. I'm like, you plowed it back? What do you mean plowed it back? She goes, well, instead of uh, distributing it to shareholders, herself and the other members and whatever, she goes, every dollar went back in and we utilized it. I said, how do you utilize it? She goes, well, we, we hired more people. We spent it. I said, oh, so it was all expenses, right? She goes, yeah, exactly. I'm like, so you were never profitable. She goes, well, on paper we were. I'm like, no, <laughs> no you weren't. You spent it all. I, I, we need to be blatantly clear. Profit is money that's distributed to the shareholders at the conclusion of a time period that the company generated, or is money that's held within the company for future distribution to the shareholders. That's what profit is. Anything that's spent is an expense. And yet many entrepreneurs, and you know, guilty as, as charged, I too was saying, oh, I'm plowing back money and I placate myself. I feel like, oh, I've made a profit, even though there's no money to show up for this, I've made a profit, but it's gotta go back in the business. But here's what's so interesting. Most of those quote unquote plowbacks resulted in no appreciable gains. Uh, nothing beyond um, what we'd normally expect in the businesses because they weren't doing hardcore ROI. So here's what we found is the inverse. Businesses that don't take, uh, that do take their profit first and don't plow the money back in the business have less money to spend, but want to achieve the same outcomes. And when you have the same desired outcome with less resources, you have to become resourceful. So these businesses are far more innovative. I'll give you two examples. Uh, I, I invested uh, years ago in a small uh, leather manufacturing business. I, I subsequently have exited from that amazing company. Um, the owner, I was was visiting that office regularly. And I was there on one particular visit at this site and went with the owner and we said, okay, we're taking our profit first and we need to get this piece of equipment. It's called a, a clicker press. It, it's a heavy duty device that clicks and ultimately molds leather. And they can cost the, the, the inexpensive ones, 25,000, 30,000, but the big ones, 100,000. Like we got to get one of these presses to do this. And we took our profit first and said, but there's no money. We don't have the reserves to do this. Do we have to borrow money or what? And we said, well, let's skip to all that consideration. Let's just look at the money we do have. We had, you know, X hundred of dollars in profit. We said, let's, let's head down to the local Home Depot. Let's go to the blue light special section. And let's just pick random stuff and see if we can get the same result with other equipment. This has become now their proprietary method. I will tell you, I can't tell you what they're doing. I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't use microwaves to mold leather because we actually tested a $99 microwave and it does transform how leather behaves, but not in a good way. But they found a way to click and mold leather, uh, uh, leather that costs hundreds of dollars. I mean, that's it. The competition is doing the same, same process for $25,000. So we can do this at scale. I mean, we can do so many more of these units so much faster and get actually a better result so what happened is when you don't give the resource, you don't follow the common path. You become resourceful. You start challenging the industry norms. I'll give you one more example because this one, some people know, may know this business. There's a company called Savannah Bananas. It's a baseball team. And if you haven't heard of them, Steve, or anyone listening, you, please Google them because 
you will hear of them um, very soon. They are exploding. And the Savannah Bananas have redefined baseball. I got a letter from them seven years ago. Jesse Cole, Emily Cole, their husband and wife are the founders of the organization. And they ran profit first from day one. And they said on day one, they're a minor league baseball team or equivalent. 300 people go to a game. They said, uh, you you charge you know $10 a ticket, get $3,000. Uh, you don't have enough money to pay for the operations of the stadium, let alone the scoreboard. And they said they ran the analysis. They, they can't afford a scoreboard maintaining it or operating it. So the, the, the knee jerk was, well, this doesn't work. Uh, we're going to ditch this. And they said, hold on. If we take our profit first, we can't run the scoreboard. What can we do? And they started to recruit the audience to be the scorekeepers. They have people walk the stands um, like it's a boxing match between innings and they're holding up the score. Then they said, well, entertainment, we can't afford entertainment. They recruited the audience to become the entertainment. They famously have a dance troupe called the Grandma Bananas. These are women 80 years or older. And uh, if you don't have teeth, like that's a bonus. <laughs> and they, they're this wild entertainment. Fast forward, and it's not just because of Profit First. I would simply say Profit First is one of the catalysts. Jesse, Emily have a clear mission. They want to be family friendly. They want to be extraordinary entertainment. Um, and they're highly, highly innovative. Fast forward, the Savannah Bananas are the Harlem Globetrotters of baseball. Their average attendance is 5,000 people per game, where the average minor league is 300, 5,000 people per game. They've sold out seven consecutive years, which includes this year, which is 2024, and 2025 is already sold out. You can't get tickets. Their profitability is off the charts. Uh, they're more profitable, of course, than any minor league team. They're more profitable than major league teams. Now, not on a dollar basis. They don't do billions of dollars. But on a percentage basis, they are more profitable than professional teams. And what, what this speaks to is that when you take your profit first, it forces innovation. When, mm. when you force innovation, you redefine a market. When you redefine a market or an industry, those are the companies that have the fastest, most explosive growth. So my experience is that profit correlates directly to growth. The more profitable you are, the more you grow. Now, another way that um, small businesses can increase their profitability is by quote unquote, firing their problematic or unprofitable clients, which is also something that you talk about in the book. Yeah. And I had to do this as a CEO and yeah. from firsthand experience uh, as a CEO and now secondhand experience as an investor, I can tell you, as you know, Mike, this is a very hard thing to do, especially for the <laughs> yeah. first time. So I'd love to hear more about your first experience firing a customer and also learn more about how you think about it today with many years of experience under your belt. And I guess at the risk of asking you like six different questions at one time, yep. I'll just mention that most small businesses don't even track customer level profitability metrics. Mm -hmm. And as a result, most don't even know who is or isn't profitable. So if you could also maybe talk to how you went about actually determining who yeah. was profitable and who wasn't, that would be great too. Yeah, let, let's start there because I think this will give context for, for anyone listening in how to deploy it. So I wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan, and it's it's the Pareto Principle packaged in a way that is is accessible and approachable and story the stories are unique. But it's the Pareto Principle, which is the 80-20 rule. 20% of your clients yield 80% of your revenue is one example. And um, it's not always a hard fixed analysis, but I would say in, ironically, most of our clients, 80% of our clients, we see the 2080 play out pretty accurately. So I invite everyone to do that. Sort your clients by revenue. That's what we do. Top line revenue to least revenue. 
And why this is important is while it doesn't necessarily represent profitability, is it does represent engagement. A client that spends more uh, and especially buys repeatedly is demonstrating through actions they value you highly. You'll often see your better paying clients, your higher revenue clients are actually easier to work with. They're more engaged because uh, they have more vested into the outcome. We do a, a link between that and profit uh, profit on product analysis or offering analysis. We look at where all the products or services we have, and then we match up and the profitability they generate. Then we match up best client to best product. That is the number one client. Your, your best clients who spend the most with you, who are buying stuff that buy money, that's the heart of your organization. You need to protect it. Well, on the flip side, the lowest revenue clients that are also very difficult to deal with that are constantly complaining, threatening even, that are buying unprofitable stuff, we call that poison. And you know, stop swallowing poison, that will kill your organization. You need to spit it out. And I don't wanna get into the total math, but usually it's about 4%, which is 20% times 20%, 4% of your client base immediately should be terminated and you'll see immediate boost in profitability and a relief of anguish from you and your team. So that's what you need to do. My first experience with this was well into my first company. I, we hit a ceiling. It presents itself for businesses in different ways, but most businesses, it seems like when you get to a million to two million, I'm talking more of a service-oriented business, there's a plateau. And the reason there's a plateau is the behavior of the organization needs to change. Very early stages, the micro-enterprise stage is just sell whatever you can because you don't even know what people want really. You may think you have a thought, but you got to find out. So just keep selling till you find what gets, what gets traction. And then once you have that, then the next stage is refine and become the world's best at that one thing. And that, that usually happens around the one or $2 million period where you can't just keep doing everything. You have to do the right thing. So in my business, I got there. This was my first company. We were computer integrators. I was a computer guy. And I remember saying, okay, I can't deal with this customer anymore. They were it was a bank. They were difficult to deal with. Uh, ironically, they spent a good amount of revenue with me, um, but they were constantly having board meetings and uh, disengaging. Once they 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 committed to a project, they would disengage from the project, and now I stuck with inventory. It was so problematic, and they felt they were the big kahuna. They said, "We're your number one customer," and they were actually number zero. I told them it's time to go, and it what was it was a hard conversation saying. Doing business with you, it's costing us. Um, the way you treat our organization, thinking that you can push us around. Not, I don't think I chose those words, but effectively said that it's not working. Uh, we're going to release you. And um, if we can find you someone else, we will, but we're never not going to serve you again. And the CEO blew his top, like, like red-faced. This was a face-to-face -face meeting. Red-faced, screaming, spittle out of the corner of the mouth type of thing. Like, who are you? And yeah, blah, blah, blah. And we don't need you. And blah, blah, blah. And when I left that meeting, the sense of relief, I walked out and said, gosh, if, if, if the person's going to blow, it's like dating. Like you tell a person, Hey, I don't think this is working out. And they explode at you. There's clearly not a good stable relationship there. And the relief, I came back to effectively cheers. When I told my team, we're no longer working with so-and-so we let them go. There was like a standing ovation. Um, not really, but there was that emotion. What I realized is my team was now engaged at a new level because I knew I was protecting them from an unfit customer. The thing we also had to do, and this was the hard part, was the costs associated with that client had to also be abandoned. They had Unix systems. 
this is old school stuff. This is before Novell, which subsequently became Microsoft and Linux, but this was Unix. We had a person dedicated to Unix and we had to let the person go because we had no need for him. And that brought more profitability to our organization. And it was painful to let him go, but we, we should have never been in that space in the first, first place. That experience um, is now something I do with some regularity. I, I consider who's my customer base. And if they're not fit for me, how do I let them go? It doesn't have to be a confrontational call. And in fact, sometimes it's just, hey, we're in a new stage of a business. Here is a new vendor that's going to provide services for you. And they, they give us a commission uh, for the transfer fee and the customers serve better. Other times it's just a pricing adjustment. We move prices up and unfit customers will say, this is too much. We want a convenience buy or we're, we're looking for the, the cheap price. And I never, for my businesses, want to be in that model. So I'm like, oh, if you want the cheap provider, consider alternatives. So it's not confrontational. Um, but it is a discipline of regularly mastering and staying focused on your core competency and not allowing that entropy to happen by taking on customers that, that aren't a good match for you. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, you told uh, uh, the story that I read in your book, which is after your first two exits, you had spent your exit proceeds. And obviously that led to a lot of personal and financial challenges for you. The question that came to mind when I was was reading that very vulnerable story is, you know, there there are likely thousands of small business owners listening right now who are either about to sell or have recently sold or are contemplating selling. And I guess my question to you is, based on your personal experience, what advice might you give to these post-exit entrepreneurs, both financially and otherwise? And I'll, I'll just start with my own personal anecdote, because when yeah. I exited my business, I talked to a lot of post-exit entrepreneurs and basically asked them the same question, you know, based on your experience, what would you do differently? And I probably got, you know, 30 different answers. However, mm. two things kept recurring over and over and over again, and they were as follows. Number one is, assuming you can do it financially, take more time off than you think you'll need. Mm -hmm. And the second one was, don't spend the money in the first 12 months. So I got a whole bunch of uh, advice, but those two were almost unanimous. So I thought that was super interesting. How would you uh, counsel these uh, post-exit entrepreneurs or soon-to-be post-exit entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I wish I got that advice when I sold my companies. Um, but honestly, I think my arrogance would have ignored it anyway. So I, when I sold my first company, within a day, I was in the new business. Uh, when I sold my second company, I was right on to my next thing. And I started spending the money right away. Here is the challenge I see in retrospect that presented itself. Um, and there is behavioral theory around it. And I don't remember the terminology, but, but effectively it's this. As our income adjusts upwardly, we adjust our expectation and life standard to be at that level very quickly. Yes. The, you know, so the so the example is like the lottery win, right? So so someone wins a lottery that's had a, a a low income in the past and now has millions that they've never experienced before. They're out buying a house within that week, and the other component is there is this continuance assumption that this is my new life standard and it'll be like this forevermore. And and there is actually a behavioral theorem about this. What I'm experiencing uh, now will be forever. And then there's this concept called loss aversion. Once we possess a new life standard, we are very hesitant to, to ever take a step back. So when 
I made all this money. I said, oh, now I'm a big hot dog. Look at how great I am. And I need to have this life standard. When it wasn't working, instead of saying, okay, uh, take a breather here. Let's ratchet back down and resort things out. I actually doubled my spend and said, well, I got to move faster uh, and, and find the next thing to sustain this. So my spend actually increased, which makes no logical sense, but it was my behavior. What's interesting is as income decreases, our ability to adjust downward is very difficult. It, it takes us a long time. So I make a lot of money within a week, we'll say, I'm now living to this big money standard. I lose a lot of money. Give me a year before I really sinks in. This is what I have to do. And usually mm -hmm. a few financial heart attacks along the way to really wake me up to this. So we, we climb very easily. We decline with very great difficulty. So my suggestion is hide the money from yourself. Allow that behavior. Don't, don't try to resist it. It's very difficult. What I wish I could have done for myself is when the income came in is immediately uh, reserve it in some capacity where it starts dripping out to me and my life standard is incrementally improved. And then I can see if I, through my new activities, can sustain this income. And then maybe I can release the money a little bit faster. I also believe we all need a third party involved, someone who's not emotionally attached to it. I'm, I'm very emotionally driven. And uh, what's mine is mine. What I've achieved, I've achieved. If I brought in, I have a trusted advisor. His name's Ron. He's amazing. Ron G. I have a few Rons in my life. Is this guy's name? His last name starts with G. And Ron um, looks at my things with detached emotion. He doesn't. He cares for me, I would say, but he doesn't care about my financial situation, and can bring a much more logical approach. Uh, he could have helped me assert uh, certain controls uh, in place where I wouldn't have had this this imminent collapse or this catastrophic collapse. In fact, I even did it in my own business. Another gentleman, his name's Larry, when I realizing my own behavior, um, kind of protecting me from myself, I, I set up these these trip wires that would prevent me in my worst moments from harming myself by overspending or doing something. I wish I did this earlier. So with Larry, what I did was when I got another business going and we're generating profit, I made him the signer on the account. So I could, I literally could not write checks from this profit account to myself because I knew in my weakest moment, I would steal from myself. So when it came to profit distribution times, I would call Larry and say, hey, it's time for a profit distribution. He'd say, all right, come on over. And then he'd say, what's the use of your funds? And I said, well, um, you know, I need to plow back in the business. He'd say, no, 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 no. Said, Get out of here, kid. When I said, oh, here's here, I'm, I'm going to go a trip with my wife and we're going to use it to celebrate and business is healthy. He'd say, okay, show me the receipts. Prove you're doing this. And he goes, great. And he writes the check out. It was a disciplinary there uh, outside of us. And, and one little last component, you see this with athletes, anyone that comes to income quickly, our journey is no different. And it was so easy for me to criticize, you know, quarterback selected in the draft, number one, makes millions of dollars, blows it all within five years and is broke. It's so easy to point at that person and say, what idiots? And then when looking in the mirror, it's like, my God, I am that idiot. I got mm -hmm. the draft. I did that. So I set these tripwires up for myself. That, that's why do now. And that's what I would have done then. Very cool. We, uh, we share a mutual friend. Uh, he's a fellow CEO and entrepreneur who's now, now an investor and a CEO coach. And I actually reached out to him before this conversation. I said, uh, Hey, I'm speaking with Mike McAllowitz. What do I absolutely have to ask this guy? 
And he told me, ask him what his personal BHAG is. So for those who who may not be familiar, BHAG stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goal. So I don't know what it is. I've had no priming. But in light of his feedback, I have to ask you, what is your personal BHAG and why did you choose it? Yeah, I assume you're talking about Rich who puts yep. together. So Rich and I, to give context, talk every two weeks. Um, and one thing I mandated for our group, so it's a group of us. And I say, before we start the call, I want everyone to have a I am statement and a mission statement, a purpose statement, or BHAG. Mine's to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So Rich has heard it ad nauseum. We, we've been doing this for a decade or more of these calls. And every morning or afternoon when I'm talking with Rich, I'll say, hey, it's Mike here, and I'm on a mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. What it is, is my passion is with microenterprise. If, you, if you're making $2 million or less, less in revenue, um, it, it's pretty dependent on you, the owner person. And uh, I, I don't know why, but my heart just sings out. For, I Actually, I do know why, because I've been there myself. And my heart sings out for its community. And for the, the micro-enterprise community, most entrepreneurs start their business for financial freedom, personal freedom, do what I want when I want. We have this vision for ourselves. And then the reality is most micro-enterprise the entrepreneur is making no money. It's check to check survival. Uh, their their time is a joke. There's no time for family or holidays or personal time. It's it's just work, work, grind, grind, hustle. So this this belief of what we want to achieve, this this dream, becomes this nightmare of what we're actually experiencing. And then we say, "Well, it's got to go harder," and it actually gets worse. That gap between the vision and reality is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. The irony is we, as a country, us as a globe, we need small business. There's a saying that small business is the backbone of the economy. And uh, I call bullshit on that. Small business is not the backbone of the economy. Small business is the economy. Every single business that exists today was a small business. Look at the mm -hmm. big players. You know, Bezos started out of a garage. Uh, Apple started out of a garage. Um, and and look at all these companies. Google started, you know, out of the garage. Uh, other uh, businesses that have grown were, were small ideas. It started with an individual, and maybe were invested into, so they got fueled very quickly because other people were engaged, and maybe hundreds or thousands of people put money into it, so it took a step forward, hopefully profitably. But every business starts off small. If we, if we lose small business, we lose it all. So it's to me the ultimate sin that small business. Microenterprise is the struggling community, and damn it, if if I can fix this, I will, and I've devoted my life to that. You know, you recently um, published a blog post about this concept of time tracking as a CEO, and how doing so has helped you manage and prioritize your time in a number of ways. and And I want to talk to you about this because uh, somebody—I actually don't even remember who—but someone forced me to do it when I was a CEO, and I was shocked by how much I learned. Uh, through an exercise as simple as tracking my time and then better understanding the difference between how I thought I was spending my time and how I actually spent my time. So it's a, a deceptively simple practice that uh, pays large dividends in my experience. So that's why I want to ask you about it. So maybe you could just walk us through why and how you've tracked your own time and what tools you use if you use any tooling. Uh, and maybe how CEOs listening to this might be able to get started on tracking their own time and making any necessary adjustments. Yeah. So I use a couple of tools that are simple. 
Um, I want to start off with the deception. So what we're talking about this time deception is what we believe is happening in the reality is the deception that plays out in the use of debt, right? We believe we're using it and then there's the reality. And this plays out in all facets of our business and our lives, what we believe to be true and what the data shows. When I, and I, I guess I'm acutely aware of this because when I had my forensics business doing forensic investigations, it was computer forensics specifically. We our tagline was data speaks the truth. And that was, there was always stories. And then there was the reality of the facts. So when it came to this time analysis, I'm like, oh, I, I spend X, you know, hours a day working on strategy. I spend X hours a day promotion. I spend X hours a day HR, whatever the things are. I use two tools. They're so simple. One is I just use a calendar. I use Google's calendar, but there's there's countless calendars in there. Every minute of my day is accounted for. And right now we're doing our podcast. I, you know, I'm looking at my calendar. We started at 1030 promptly. Uh, we have allocated because we're going to have a conversation afterwards up to 12 noon promptly. But when we're done, we may finish at you know 1155. I will make an adjustment on the calendar as I'm looking at to be 1155. So what I can do is I can go back now in time at any time and see with absolute clarity how I'm spending my time. I categorize it. So there's, this is promotional. So it's categorized as promotional. Selfishly, that, that's how it benefits me. Um, later today, uh, there is a uh, event I'm doing that's also promotional at 1.50 a, a p.m. this afternoon. So that's how I track it. And now I have years and years of history and I can look. For, forward projecting, I've started using a technique that Rich, our mutual friend, told me about color coding. He's like, he wants to have this balance in his life. And if it's health, he colors it green. If it's uh, if it's business, he colors it red or whatever. He has these different colors. So he can look out and he says, if my life is out of balance looking forward, I don't have the right colors, I can make adjustments. So tool one is for me, Google Calendar. And I always find the simpler the tool, the better. The second yes. thing is up here, you may hear a beep. I don't know if you heard that beeping, but this is a little cube and it has time increments on it, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. When I turn it to any one of those particular numbers, I just flipped over to 15 minutes, it starts a countdown. Um, and this is kind of the Pomodoro method or whatever. But what I found is without a time constraint, which is based upon Parkinson's law, productivity, the, the less time available, the more productive we are, the more time we give ourselves, uh, the more time we consume. When I start constraining time to do things, I become more focused in doing things. And it's yep. literally between those two things. I have clarity in what I'm doing and have a mechanism to enforce um, focus on what I'm doing when I'm doing it. Yeah, I love that. I love the simplicity of the color coding method. And, and my experience is aligned with yours in that the simpler the tool, the better. I'm sure there's a bunch of fancy apps that, that one can use, but I, I question whether... Uh, you know, one, one needs those two things happened when I was forced to track my time. One I already alluded to, which is the way that I thought I was spending my time was actually completely dislodged from the way that I was actually spending my time. And I don't know why as human beings, it's so hard for us to see the difference between the two, but nonetheless, that's certainly what I found. The other thing that I did is I tracked my time in increments of, I think it was 15 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes, something like that. And then uh, over the course of a week, a month, I put everything into one of four quadrants. So mm. either do I like doing it? Yes or no. Am I good at doing it? Yes or no. And so I put every increment of time into one of those quadrants. And when I looked at 
the the bad quadrant, which is I don't like doing it and I'm not good at it. What I found, you know, coincidentally was it formed like the perfect job description for somebody else. It, it turned out that a lot of the things were in a, a similar category. In my case, it was a CFO. So I said, my goodness, I can find someone who loves doing this and who's good at it. And they're going to be thrilled and I'm going to be thrilled because I no longer have to do it. So in a, a sort of unintentional way, it also turned into a great uh, clarifying tool as it relates to uh, the logic to making a hire. Yeah, I think it was Dan Sullivan. I just started researching or reading about his work. His stuff is amazing. I feel shameful that I've only started in the last year. I've heard his name a million times. I think he wrote a book called Who Not How or, or something to that effective label. And and that's it. Um, I was reading one of his books this morning. He has another one called 10X is Easier Than 2X. And the aha from, I, I read, I try to read every day. Um, I shouldn't say I try. I have allocated time to read every day. Uh, sometimes an emergency will replace that. And, but it's maybe once a month that something comes up that I can't read. And this morning when I was reading, the aha from today was um, we all have a unique strength that is truly unique to us because of A, our genetic makeup, B, the the environment we grew up in and our history. So no one here has anything that's the same. And we will have more impact and growth, success, however you want to, I don't know how you define that, but we'll have that if we lean more and more into our strengths. And therefore we have to, abandon is not the right word, but delegate the stuff that we're not good at, the stuff we can do, but we're not extraordinary at. But what's beautiful is there's someone else that probably is far more extraordinary at that and gives them joy, accomplishment, success. And so we start building this, this network of, of other complementary folks and everyone is coming out winning and the impact collectively is so much greater. There's that saying, well, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think that's the mentality. And um, that's what, what I'm trying to do too with my own organization. I, it's funny. Someone says, Oh, you own the business. So do you, you do HR, um, you know, do the meetings with the team? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't do any of that stuff there. I'm a business owner. I'm not the president of the company. I'm not the leader. And I think people are conflating that I have a role and responsibility. I hope. And I, I think our team believes, and at least for now, I'm the most appropriate spokesperson for our brand and what we're doing, but I'm surely not the leader of the organization. That's Kelsey. Um, that's her talent. When I realized this, I, this was maybe six years ago when she became president and I got rid of that ideology for myself or that term, I think our team would have done anything for the company, you know, however you define anything. Now I realize my team, our team here will do more than anything. They will take a bullet for Kelsey. They have such an affinity and affection toward the mission that she has our company's course on. And we've elevated and the performance of our organization is so much better because we have such a greater affinity toward our mission. And it was necessary for me to step out of something that I could do. I just couldn't do it well. Yep. Mike, one or two questions left before we conclude here. I, um, I, I noticed that you have a, a, another book called Fix This Next. And that's basically all about helping CEOs think through what to prioritize, what not to prioritize and how to sequence their various company goals. That got, that got me thinking about the the idea of setting company-wide goals in general. Um, and the question I want to ask is that in your experience, what are the most frequent mistakes that you see leaders make with respect to 
setting goals for their companies. And, and my personal experience at the risk of answering my own question was <laughs> setting, setting too many goals. My experience yeah. was that the more goals you set, the less likely you are to achieve any one of them. So now when I'm on boards, um, I'll often ask the CEOs, what is the one thing you're trying to accomplish this year? Right. Just, just the, the, that, that tends to be a very clarifying question. So that was kind of my experience. What has your yeah. experience been with respect to company goal setting and where leaders tend to trip up most frequently? There is a uh, health expert who's very popular named Peter Atia. He's excellent. And uh, he shared in a podcast in the last year or so, this thing called the, uh, the four dark horsemen of chronic disease. And, and he talks about cancer and heart disease and these four elements. It's like, Oh, it's really interesting. Cause there's, I think five elements of business that if not addressed will bring chronic disease to a business, but there's only five things I see over and over again. And this is interpreted from, from fix this next. When I invest in businesses, we go in, it's always, which one of these five horsemen do we have to fix? When we fix it, let's go for the next. And it becomes a cycle. So the first one is this belief that sales cures everything. It doesn't, it's total nonsense. In fact, sales brings organizational stress. So the more I sell, the more obligation I have. So a business that's struggling and trying to sell their way out of it is in real trouble. They're actually amplifying the problem. So we need appropriate sales. We need adequate sales, but there's a link between sales and profit. So we have to do this kind of correlative analysis. Are we selling, but are we selling profitably? And that's where margin comes in. So first we look at sales. Are we just selling to sell? And that's a problem. Secondly, and, and you talked about selecting the best customers, the best products. That's the key. Second, we look at margin. Do we have the right margins? Small businesses inevitably undervalue themselves and underprice themselves. And it's, it's a major trap and, and panic ensues. Uh, my wife and I had a conversation um, we're, we're very fortunate. We have a house cleaner that comes to our house um, periodically um, to do like a major clean. And uh, the team came yesterday and they charge a price that's clearly too low. And they came yesterday and it was just this panic to get in and out because they had to get to the next customer. And they started cutting corners on the work they're doing. And my wife's like, I don't know if we should keep them. And I'm like, I don't know if they're going to be around much longer because they're not charging enough. But that's a classic trap. And it's also affirmed because if you charge less, you'll get more customers who want to pay less, who see very little value in you, but they see the cheap price. So it becomes this, this insidious trap. So margins, the second thing. So sales, are we selling the right things the right way? Secondly, do we have the right margins? Third is do we have a profit system? Is there some form of habitual profit draw? And, that, and that's where profit first comes into play. And there's other ways of doing this, but if the business isn't, gener isn't consistently generating profit, um, and isn't doing it quarter in, quarter out, day in, day out, there's a fundamental problem with the business. These businesses that hope to make a profit or maybe we'll make it in a couple of years uh, really is a huge turnoff for me. And we got to fix that. Um, the third thing is cash reserve um, or fourth thing, I guess now is cash reserve. If the business doesn't have any cash, it has no runway. And if it has no runway, uh, there is inevitably a, a problem that will present itself. And now this business is in desperation mode, organize this tank. We've got to build a cash reserve. Uh, there's a concept called protective capacity. It's a manufacturing principle, but you need to have a protective layer of cash to navigate the bumps and hills and valleys of business. And then the last thing is organizational efficiency. What is the throughput of the organization? And 
can it be improved using, we always deploy theory of constraints, regardless if it's a manufacturing business or a service business or anything in between, every company is taking raw input and making a final output, the deliverable. So between that, there's a sequence of events. And if a business owner doesn't resolve those efficiencies, it just over time loses ground to the competition, uh, has an, an unnecessary cost. So we address that. So what we do is we, it's those five kind of dark horsemen that we evaluate, but we only pick one at a time. We say that our biggest issue right now is efficiency or is sales margin. We're going to see this through to resolution to the best level we can now. And once it's resolved, then we identify where the next biggest issue is among those five. And we circulate among those five over and over again. In most cases, we've identified about 25 to 30 common issues in a business. But if we did the 80-20 rule, the 20% is those five. Very cool. Very cool. The simplicity of that framework. Um, lastly, Mike, I, I'm going to ask you a totally self-indulgent question. Um, and it's going to be pretty much, you know, pretty dislodged, let's say, from the <laughs> question we've been discussing thus far. The reason why it's self-indulgent is because somewhere on my lifetime bucket list is this idea of writing a book. And honestly, awesome. I don't know why anyone, I don't know why anyone would ever listen to me, but to the extent that, you know, my mom and my dad and my two sisters buy enough copies, maybe it'll be, <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be worth it. But um, the question I have for you is like, you. so you've written nine books after having yeah. founded and operated and sold several different companies. I understand why you wrote it, right? Given your personal behavior, you want to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So I totally get why you did it. Um, it seems very much aligned with your personal mission. I guess my question to you is like, um, how did you pitch yourself and your book ideas to publishers who probably decline thousands of good business book ideas each year? I was told by a friend that uh, roughly 20,000 business books are published each year. So he said, you know, think of um, a major um, hockey arena, for example, they yeah. probably have 25,000 fans every game. They said, so uh, think of every person published a business book that year. Um, yeah, I think he was trying to talk me out of writing a business book. So in light of those pretty daunting numbers, how did you pitch yourself and yet another business book to these publishers who probably read a million of these things? Yeah, yeah. And uh, my experience is... I don't think it's 20,000 a year. I wouldn't be surprised if it's 200,000 books a year because there is a massive movement in the self-published space, uh, PDF production, stuff that doesn't go through the traditional publishing model. So it, it's the, the challenge has been exasperated. I actually tell aspiring authors, uh, the world does not need more books. It needs more great books. So the a friend of mine said with the advancements of ChatGPT, and you know these different AI tools, the volume of bullshit is exponentially growing, and the cost has dropped to zero. So it costs mm -hmm. nothing to create bullshit. And so you're, you're we're seeing this massive output of just garbage. Um, shamefully, there's also many or some extraordinary books that go undiscovered, and that uh, for me that's the biggest sin of all. And I think all the work you've done, Steve, your experience, you, you probably have that. And uh, it would be such a shame if the world doesn't discover it. So I became an author 15 or 16 years ago now. The game has changed. It used to be uh, go there with a cool idea because this was before social media was it. And now some of the judgment is, well, how big is your following and so forth? But the one thing I've seen play out over and over again that 
drives interest is do you have something that is applicable, approachable, and doable? Meaning, is there something that can be done? And by the end of the journey of the book, the reader has appreciable gains uh, that have been achieved, that accessibility. So that component, and publishers are looking for it. The second thing is, does the author know that writing the book is about 1% of the effort? It's ironic. You have to put 100% of your soul into writing the best book you can to make it as accessible and easy and consumable as possible. And then when it's done, you got to spend 99% of that. I mean, in 99% of your effort, so 100 or 1,000 or a million times, however it works out, of what you just did in writing in marketing the book. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you see your book as a product of a business, you are so much more likely to have impact than if you see it as uh, a pinnacle piece of your effort or, uh, or something that's representative of you or a trophy of some sort or, or any of those things. Um, it's the marketing. And so what we need to do is convince, if we're gonna go with the mainstream publishing, that, that's what I do. I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone, but that's what I do. You gotta convince the publisher and they have to convince themselves that this book will transform lives and the person backing it will not stop until lives are transformed. That's the key. Very cool. Very cool. Mike, this has been really a, a treat for me. Anytime I, I read a book and uh, I find that its content resonates with me, I always find it to be such a treat to talk to the author. Like you, I'm, I'm a fellow reading geek and, and read every day. So this has been a huge awesome. treat for me. Is there anything that we didn't cover today, knowing uh, that we have an audience of small business CEOs and investors and entrepreneurs, anything that we didn't cover today that you want to leave our audience with? Anything left unsaid from our conversation? Yeah, I think we covered so much, but but there is one thing I want just to compel the small business owner that's listening in right now to consider is this, that your clients want you to be profitable. Your clients are starving for you to be profitable, but they'll never say those words. Like you'll never have a client come to you and say, hey, can you charge a little more? Can you rip me off a little bit? What your clients will say is, I want your undivided attention. I want to be treated as your number one customer. I want the best of you. And the only way to do that is by being sustainably profitable. I mean, imagine, Steve, uh, you rush me to the hospital because I'm having a heart attack and two doctors come out. Doctor one says, uh, I'm really in, in dire straits right now. I, I, I'm not making much money. Um, I, I'm trying to get as many clients through here. Um, are you ready to go? Doctor two comes out and says, I'm making tons of money. I am crushing it. And uh, your, your procedure is something I do all the time. Charge a premium for it. I have a 99.9% .9 success rate. Who do you choose? Of course, doctor two. There is not all clients, but there's a portion of clients that see our services as life altering. Our product as life altering it is significant to them. And then they want the person who is sustainably profitable. They want a person that's going to bring all of themselves to that circumstance and it has no worry or weight on them. And I suspect your best clients want that. So your, your best clients, perhaps the majority of clients want you to be profitable. They don't say those words but they know what it translates in for them, what it translates into for them. So you have a responsibility to be profitable. Your clients need it. Fantastic. Mike, what a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's been a joy. Thanks, Steve.